And the Old Testament reading for today is Genesis 19, 1 through 14, 30 through 38. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For you're about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place the Lord is about to destroy the city, but he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. And on to verse 30 through 38. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters, and the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with their father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn, the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. The word of the Lord. One ancient hope, it's, it's good to be with you. This morning, um, don't let anybody ever tell you that the Bible is a boring book. Um, this is a strange passage. It's a, it's a chilling passage in many ways. It's, it's a horrifying passage. Uh, it surprises us. It catches us off guard. But this passage is the word of God. And as we say each week, it is the word of God that calls and collects us as the church. It's the word of God that creates us as the church, and it's the word of God that crafts us into what 
God intends us to be. So with that confidence in the Word of God, let us come together in prayer as we look at this very strange passage together. God, our Father, we we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you have sent your spirit, that you might open our eyes, open our ears, soften our heart to your word. I pray, Father, that you would help us to read it rightly. I pray that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions, to this passage, and Lord, that most of all, in this passage, we would continue to see your promise, which you have given and which you have fulfilled in your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, I I was watching a a nature documentary recently, and it was about colors, about all of the colors that we find in nature and in all of the different ways that both plants and animals employ those colors. However, the the host, an, an excellent British naturalist made, a, made an interesting statement at, at one point, and he was walking through this, this field of uh, a British meadow full of flowers. These beautiful colors were meeting him at every twist and at every turn, and he, he stepped back and he said something along the lines of the following. The colors of these flowers, while beautiful, are not for us. These colors are for the bees. So then we we might enjoy the colors, but these colors have come to be what they are without any thought of human perception, human appreciation, human adoration. The fact that they are pleasing to us, the fact that we enjoy their colors, is a mere coincidence. What the colors are actually for is to attract bees, and as the bees fly from flower to flower, from color to color, the flowers find themselves pollinated. And so these colors might move us, these colors might even stop us in our tracks, but these colors are not for us. And so while this naturalist knows more about nature than I ever will, the nature he knows is actually quite small. The nature he knows does not incorporate the human perception of experience and beauty here as anything other than a kind of cosmic coincidence is anything other than a kind of anthropological accident. And we, we've talked about this example before, but it, but it fits so well. C.S. Lewis describes a very similar incident. In his book, The, the Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis talks about finding a school curriculum, and it scrutinizes a position put forward by the, the English poet and, and all-around intellectual Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And what happens in this account is is Coleridge sees two people talking about a waterfall. One of them describes the waterfall as sublime. One describes the waterfall as pretty. And Coleridge sides with the person who says that the waterfall is sublime. But the authors of this book that Lewis is critiquing, they write the following. Quote, When the man said that this is sublime, he appeared to be making a remark about the waterfall. Actually, he was not making a remark about the waterfall, but a remark about his own feelings. What he was really saying was, I have feelings associated in my mind with the word sublime, or I have sublime feelings. Anything I say about the waterfall is, in actuality, only the effect it might have upon me. 
I may perceive it as, as something sublime, or I may see it as something pretty, but one description isn't really more accurate than the other because both experiences are mere coincidences. The waterfall is not for us. The waterfall is for moving water from high places down to rivers and streams. A waterfall is for this. It's not for us. The sight of the waterfall is not for us. The colors of the flowers are not for us. The flowers are not beautiful. They only produce beautiful feelings within me. The philosopher Charles Taylor is helpful here. He, he gives a sharp definition of what we're sort of hovering around and we're, we're talking about this. He says, quote, to objectify a given domain is to deprive it of its normative force for us or at least bracket the meanings it has for our lives. So Taylor here is talking about objectification. He's saying to objectify something is to deny that, that anything we come upon makes any claim upon us or has any inherent meaning. So to say that the flower is beautiful is to affirm that the flower really is beautiful, and to say that it's beautiful is to say it deserves my appreciation and adoration. It's what the flower means, and, and that's the claim that the flower puts upon me. Otherwise, to deny the flower any inherent meaning and to reduce its beauty only to the effect that it produces in me, well, that means I'm objectifying the flower. But we can and must go deeper still. To avoid objectification, to avoid the notion that beauty is anything more than a feeling produced in me, to avoid the notion that the colors of flowers are not for us, then we really need a maker. Not a series of cosmic coincidences, not random accidents, but an actual creator. The flower must have a meaning given to it by a maker, one who stands above and apart from any effects the flower might produce in me. A maker who can say, yes, the waterfall is more than pretty. It is, in fact, sublime. One who can say, yes, the flowers are for the bees, but they're also for us, and you are also for the bees. This may seem like a strange way to start a sermon on Genesis 19, but this issue is actually at the heart of the text we find here. Do things actually mean? Do things actually make a claim upon us? Or are all the thoughts and beliefs and opinions we have about the things we encounter, all the meanings we attribute to them, are they merely the effect of what they produce within us? Because how can anything outside of me, my neighbor, or anything else I find make any kind of claim upon me, lay any obligation or responsibility upon me if there's no objective meaning outside of me. We've looked at this before too, but, but, but we see this, this sentiment codified, perhaps surprisingly, in the, the kennedy Souter o'connor plurality opinion issued by the Supreme Court in 1992. It says, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe and of the history or the mystery of human life. And I'm not an expert in political science or law. I don't mean to look at it under that lens, but only from a theological perspective because this just is the objectification we have been describing. The meaning is in me. And this brings us to Genesis 19. 
Because in Genesis 19, we find everything falling apart. We find the breakdown of every single relationship of all kind. And I want to argue that the assumption here is that we are the meaning makers. This brings us to the heart of the problem. In an earlier sermon, we we talked about instrumentalization, if you remember, and, and we looked at the work of theologian Oliver O'Donovan. And O'Donovan said that when we instrumentalize something, we see an entity, we see something, we see someone only according to the good for, the good for it produces for some other thing. We looked at some examples. Grass is instrumentalized and reduced simply to food for sheep. A dog is instrumentalized and it's reduced simply to something to guard our property. We saw the example of of Hagar, a a person, and sadly Hagar is instrumentalized and produced, reduced to simply a, a womb for Abraham's child. But we can go further here because in all of these accounts, the ultimate good for goes to the one who does the instrumentalizing. When we reduce grass to food for sheep, it's ultimately good for the farmer. When we reduce the dog simply to a guard of our property, well, it's good for the property owner. When we reduce Hagar simply to a means to get pregnant, well, it's a good for Abraham and Sarah. Something or someone has been defined by the interest, by the appetite of another. They've been defined by the effects, by the benefits that they can bring about in the life of another. Again, the waterfall is that which produces sublime feelings in me, the flower produces beautiful feelings in me, and Hagar produces secure feelings in me because she offers a security of offspring. And as a reader, I might feel distress for Hagar, but all I'm ultimately saying is that Hagar produces distressing feelings in me. And to be sure, if if sex is only meant for the propagation of of the species, what else can I say that Abraham is is seriously, is, is, uh, sorry, he's simply carrying out his evolutionary imperative. To be successful, he needs to propagate. Just like the flowers might, by coincidence, be associated with the human perception of beauty, this biological process of sex, by coincidence, has become associated with human notions such as dignity, respect, and love. Sex doesn't inherently mean any of these things. It has merely, by a kind of anthropological accident, come to be associated with them. To be successful, Abraham needs to propagate, and if this is what it takes, then this is what it takes. Any feelings of distress for Hagar ultimately run counter to what I am and how I got here in the first place. Abraham has simply chosen to associate sex with personal and subjective meanings that are different from our own. That's his prerogative. Because if there's no meaning out there, if if nothing is more than coincidence or accident, then what else can meaning be but meaning for me? What else can anything be but a good for me? I know things as I order them to myself, as I order them to my desires, preferences, and appetites. Their meaning is a personal matter. Everything means what it can do for me. And as the one who is free to define the meaning of existence, the universe, and the mystery of human life, you just are what you mean to me. And we see this writ large in the city of Sodom. 
we see the city defining the neighbor, defining the other through acts of instrumentalizing. We see the people being known according to the appetites of the townsfolk. For one, we see economic instrumentalizing. The prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 16.49 says the following about Sodom. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. The people of Sodom had gained riches, they had gained ease by the work of others. And they offered no help, they offered no aid to the poor and the needy, those who had helped to get them there. They saw the neighbor as a tool for their economic benefit. They saw the poor and the needy as a good for their excess and prosperity. And this should shake us. As biblical scholar Preston Sprinkle warns, quote, that should be convicting if you're living in North America and therefore among the richest humans ever to walk the earth. Excess and ease has a way of killing our ability to see and to serve the poor and the needy. Excess and ease has a way of making us dull. And this is what happened when we define the world, what happens when we define our neighbor according to economic benefit. So let's make sure that as we read Sodom, we're also taking a deep look at our own economic practices. Realizing that, in the words of Charles Taylor, our modern economy has, quote, helped to dissolve historical communities, has fostered atomism, which knows no frontiers or loyalties, and is ready to close down a mining town or savage a forest habitat at the drop of a balance sheet, end quote. And this is not to advocate or denigrate any particular economic system, but just to point out that when economics comes to define our world, this is how we are tempted to instrumentalize the other. And so ask yourself, when you think about most of your plans or worries for the future, are they economic? Do they concern your bank account in some way, shape, or form? If so, then be careful. You might be defining, you might be giving meaning to the world and your neighbor by way of economic instrumentalizing. But in Sodom, we also see social instrumentalizing. And by social instrumentalizing, I mean reducing people to the status and to the opportunities that they themselves can provide us. We see this most clearly in the person of Lot. When we come to Sodom, we see that he has a place at the city gate. And that's important. That's a place of respect. That's a place of status. We find that Lot has become a person of note within this city. Yet Lot realizes that wrong festers on every corner. We see this in the urgent warning he gives to the angels. Don't spend the night in the town square. He knows exactly what will happen. He knows what these inhabitants will do. But he lives with it. He's not concerned about their spiritual state. Lot does not see these people as people who are destroying themselves by sin and who need help, but he sees them only as instruments of his status and his success. And so again and again and again, he simply looks the other way. And we have to ask ourselves, have we done this? Do we often turn a blind eye to things for the sake of professional or social success? 
do we find ourselves more concerned about our connections and our resumes rather than the very souls of the persons that we live and work with? If so, we might be defining other persons, we might be giving meaning to other persons according to our own appetites, according to the own, our own, uh, sorry, the, the feelings of importance that they produce within us. And we also come to, to sexual instrumentalizing. And this is at the forefront of this account. But why? Why would this be pushed to the forefront? Well, nothing more fully reduces persons to objects and tools of our appetites and urges than sexual instrumentalizing. I'm not instrumentalizing their labor or their resources or their status, but their very bodies, their very selves. I'm reducing the whole and actual person to a good for myself. And astonishingly, we see this as the crowd demands to have sex with the two visitors. If you look at Genesis 19.4, the text reads, The men of Sodom, both young and old, all of the people to the last man surrounded the house. And it's unclear here if the word translated here as, as men refers to just the men in the city or all of the people of the city. Um, Old Testament scholar John Goldengay makes the point that um, what it, sorry, I said that before. What's translated here as men is often translated as people, and it would refer to a group that is both male and female. And while we're not exactly sure about the makeup of the crowd, it is clear what they want. They are demanding a kind of communal act of rape. And this is chilling. They've looked at these visitors and they've defined them. They've given them the meaning as mere tools for their sexual pleasure. Their meaning is the feelings of sexual pleasure that they might produce in the crowd. And honestly, when we look at ourselves, we have not done much better as a culture. In our own times, pornography is everywhere, and it cannot help but change the way we see the world and especially the way that we see women. It's training us to see other human beings as mere tools for satisfying our appetites. And we might react and say, this is wrong, but to do so, we actually have to take another step. Either we have full sexual freedom, defined as the absence of any and all limits, or sexuality really is a matter of ethics. As journalist and cultural commentator Katie Royfe writes about the complexities of our modern sexual freedom, she says the following, quote, it's not the absence of rules exactly, the dizzying sense that we can do whatever we want, but the sudden realization that nothing we do matters. If I am the maker of my own meaning, if my sexuality or anything else about myself is what I deem it to be, the feelings it produces in me, then in the end, it, it really doesn't matter. The waterfall produces pretty feelings in me, the flower beautiful feelings, the visitors desirous feelings, and sex pleasurable feelings, or at least I expect it to. If this is the meaning of sex, the way it makes us feel, and if each person is entitled to their own meaning of it, then not only is sex a very small thing, but who are we to question the meaning assigned to it by another? The moment I tell you your view is wrong, what else can you say but I've chosen to assign this meaning 
Or is you've chosen to assign that meaning? I think it should be carried out this way, but you might have another opinion. You might find my view immoral or improper or even horrifying, but what you really mean is that my view produces in you immoral or improper or horrifying feelings. And that's quite a different thing. Alistair McIntyre, the philosopher, is very helpful here. He says that if there's nothing beyond our own feelings, our own preferences, our own desires that we can appeal to, then ethics has completely changed. If, if there's nothing outside of us as humans, if there's no meaning out beyond us, if there's nothing that makes a claim upon us, then all that we ultimately have is my will and my preference against your will and your preference. As McIntyre writes of this situation, quote, the sole reality of distinctly moral discourse is the attempt of one will to align the attitudes, feelings, preferences, and choices of another with its own. That is, we, we no longer have morality or ethics in any traditional sense because there's nothing higher that we can appeal to beyond our feelings and our preferences. All that we have is my will and my meaning against your will and your meaning. And so ethical argumentation becomes a matter of who you are rather than any objective criteria that might call both of us to account. And we see this too in Sodom when Lot urges the town folk, please do not act so wickedly. They respond by saying the following in Genesis 19.9. This fellow came to sojourn with us, and now he has become the judge? In effect, what they're saying is, it doesn't matter what you're claiming, only who you are. You can't judge us. You're a foreigner from a different culture and a different race. Keep your thoughts to yourself. This is how we do things in Sodom, so keep your mouth shut. And we, of course, can think of other variations. Who are you to judge? You're just a woman. Who are you to judge? You're just a man. Who are you to judge? You're just a child. Who are you to judge? You have no idea how things work in the real world. Who are you to judge? You're from a minority culture. Who are you to judge? You're from the majority culture. Or perhaps most common, who are you to judge? You're not me. I am my own meaning maker. I am my own judge, and you cannot exercise any claim upon me. And so everyone and everything is objectified by me. Ethics becomes a battle of wills, a matter of my preference over your preference, my strength against your strength, and so ethics becomes the raging crowd of Sodom. Ask yourself, do you completely dismiss the words from certain persons or groups of people because of their so social location? The Christian claim to a meaning in ethics that transcends my own personal preferences should foster always in me a willingness to listen to and learn from any and all persons. But this doesn't happen in Sodom, and so what happens? Well, the city is struck blind, and in this physical reality, we get a sense of their spiritual reality. The ancient African bishop Augustine said that 
Ultimately, all of us find ourselves in one of two communities, either the earthly city or the heavenly city. And the earthly city is that city built upon the love of self, and that heavenly city is built upon the love of God. And in Sodom, we find the perfect paradigm of the earthly city. If we are our own makers of meaning, if everything is defined by us according to our appetites, then what you are is what you can do for me. The irony here is that the people of Sodom have refused to see anything under the true light of God. The theologian Lydia Schumacher shows how Augustine speaks of the way the Christian must come to see the world, namely by the light that God casts upon all things. However, as Schumacher writes, quote, darkened vision makes the mind unsure about what can be subsumed under the light, fostering aversions and fears and inhibiting the human ability to navigate the world confidently in the knowledge that there is a place for everything in it in the divine order and thus to identify God's goodness in all things, end quote. When we operate in darkness like the people of Sodom, we fail to see the light, see the world in the light of, of God. We fail to see the light of God's goodness and graciousness in all things. And when we look at all things and we see God's goodness and graciousness, that goodness and graciousness makes a claim upon us. But Sodom has never seen anything by this light, least of all the neighbor. What is the other to them? Only a tool of economic, social, or sexual instrumentalizing. That's the only way they've ever seen their neighbor, and so they've never actually seen their neighbor. The physical blindness makes no difference here. They've never seen their neighbor, and that's always been the case. Sodom just is the unseeing city, and their blindness indicates their failure to join the city of God, where in all meaning and all understanding is subsumed, is ordered to the love of God. We are good. God has made us in his image, and what could provide the human more dignity than that? We're not instruments of others so that their appetites might be fulfilled. Sexuality is good. Marriage is good. Singleness is good. All of these are good gifts from our Creator. They're not mere means of fulfilling our appetite. But if they're gifts, that means we receive them. And if we receive them, then we are not the ones who set the conditions of their use. Who alone can judge? Well, God the Creator. For instance, to, to look at one example that's at the forefront here, God has limited sex to marriage between a man and a woman. But in following his limits, this limit, we find true freedom. True freedom is not the absence of limits, but the becoming and doing of what God intends us to do and to become. The point here is that if sex is to be truly meaningful, it must be more than the feelings it produces in me. And if there's any basis of sexual ethics, the meaning of sex must rest in something outside of us. It must rest in a creator. We have to be open to letting the creator, God himself, tell us what sexuality is. Even if it cuts against our own feelings and our own preferences and desires. I don't mean to say that this is an easy process, it can be quite painful and requires the help and support of a loving and caring community. What I mean to say is this, if sex is to have any meaning beyond our own preferences, then we have to be open to letting our own preferred meanings of sex be changed. 
If the meaning of sex is to be anything other than our preferences and desires, then our preferences and desires cannot be the ultimate arbiter of the meaning of sex. Otherwise, it's no bigger than our preferences. We're taking away any basis for sexual ethics of saying this or that should not be done. All you can say is, you'd prefer this kind of sex not be practiced, but I disagree. To again quote Roy Fee on modern sexuality, it's not the absence of rules exactly, the dizzying sense that we can do whatever we want, but the realization, the sudden realization, that nothing we do matters. Sex without limits is sex without meaning. You simply cannot have it both ways. If sex is whatever you make it, then it's no more than whatever you make it. But if it is something more, then I'm no longer the judge. And if I'm not the judge, then it's bigger than my desires and preferences and appetites. And so my desires and preferences and appetites must be submitted to something bigger than myself. So this brings us to one final basic foundational question. What defines us and our neighbor? Is it God or is it our economic, social, and sexual appetites? Well, Lot here gives us, um, gives us an example of the second option. What does Lot do? Lot offers his own daughters up to save himself. He offers up his daughters to satisfy and to quiet the raging crowd. And so we find, sadly, these vulnerable young women are wholly instrumentalized. And then we see this damage begetting more damage as Lot himself is instrumentalized by his daughters as he becomes simply a means to have a child. We find the account of, of drunken incest wherein the first daughter, by intercourse with her father, gives birth to the father of the Moabites. But here also we find a twist because one of those Moabites will be Ruth, and Ruth is the great, great, great grandmother of Jesus Christ, who is also the Son of God. And God does something amazing in Jesus Christ. While Lot offered up his daughters to save himself, God offers his very Son to save us. Why? Well, because we deep down are Sodom. We deep down have re reduced our neighbor to tools of satisfying our economic, social, and sexual appetite, even if only in thought. God cares deeply for our neighbor. He's made our neighbor in his very own image, and he will hold us accountable for this instrumentalizing. But God also loves us, and Christ willingly gave his life for us. As he tells us in John 15, 13, greater love has none than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so we find an important point here. God cares so much for our neighbor that any economic, social, or sexual instrumentalizing is actually tantamount to killing our neighbor, be it in thought, word, or deed. This might sound extreme, but this is just how much God loves those who he's made in his image. But we too are made in his image, and this is how much God cares for us. And so what does Christ laying down his life show us? It shows us that God is committed both to wholly loving our neighbor and wholly loving us. In Christ, God himself takes the punishment that we deserve for treating our neighbor as a mere tool. 
And this is how he upholds that perfect love for the neighbor and the perfect love for us. Christ suffered the very same destruction as did Sodom on our behalf so that we might flee this destruction and run into the hands, into the arms of God's fatherly embrace. Only with the cross is there both perfect justice and perfect mercy. Any other approach will leave us rightly condemned as uh, perpetrators of injustice, as instrumentalizers, without hope of forgiveness. Or it will overlook the deep deeds of injustice that we all commit. Only here in the cross do we find perfect justice and perfect mercy, perfect love of neighbor, and perfect love of us. My neighbor doesn't just produce feelings of love within me. My neighbor is a person who makes a claim of love upon me. When I love my neighbor, I let God define who my neighbor is. This person, just like me, is a person for whom Christ died. Therefore, no one is defined by the self-interest of another, but by the one who gave himself up for us. Greater love has none than this. And to finish up here, and I want to borrow an insight from a member of the congregation. The fact is God is able to use all of this economic, social, and sexual instrumentalizing to still bring about something good. All of these terrible things are not beyond God's redemption. These horrid events will be grafted into the coming of Jesus Christ, Lot and his daughter will become a part of the messianic line. Remember that. When you look back upon sexual experiences that seem bleak and seem tragic, and I say this with trepidation, remember that nothing falls outside of God's good, redemptive purposes. The sin of humanity can never bind or halt or extinguish the redemption that God seeks to bring into each of our lives. Sin is not so powerful as to overcome the purposes of God. Even from the ashes of Sodom, he has brought forth Jesus Christ. Rest in this Redeemer who has come from the most unlikely of places. Put your faith in him, trust in him, and receive the love that he provides, the love that truly defines who you are. Let us pray. God our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have loved us, that you have given us meaning, and that you have defined us. You love us, and you gave your very Son for us. Help us to rest in that. Help us to know that. Help us to live in that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.